Do you want to know how to get into Johns Hopkins School of Medicine? Are you wondering what Johns Hopkins program is like? How is it adapting to the post-COVID era and AI? Tune in today and you'll hear from its assistant dean for admissions and student affairs. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 533rd episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me today. Are secondary applications raining down on you in a deluge? Are you struggling to keep up and write the essays with the specificity and coherence they require? Check out Accepted's Ultimate Guide to Secondary Essay Questions at accepted.com slash secondary essays, just like it sounds, accepted.com slash secondary essays, one word, and download your free copy today. Today's guest, Paul White, Assistant Dean for Admissions at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, attended Yale for undergrad, Georgetown for his law degree, but he has worked in admissions both undergrad and medical school since 1988. Since 2012, he has served the applicant community as the Assistant Dean for Admissions at Johns Hopkins. He was last on Admissions Straight Talk in November 2020 when the pandemic was raging, people were hunkering down and working and attending school at home. I'm thrilled that the pandemic seems to be in the past and that today, Paul White has found time to join us again. Paul, welcome back to Admissions Straight Talk. Thank you very much, Linda. Nice to see you. Can I make one correction, though? Absolutely. Yes, I actually started in admissions June of 1979. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and then took a, a four-year break in which I worked and then went and got my JD. So uh-huh. I'm in my 40th year in admissions. I came wow. back to admissions in 1986, but if you go all the way back to when I started, it was 1979. Wow. That's when I got my MBA. School. Oh, okay. So I've, <laughs> and I've been doing my medical school admissions since 19, uh, 2000, the year 2000. Okay. So I, also, all right. I have, I'm in my 40th year of the mission of the last 44. Okay, great. Well, you obviously have a lot of perspective, experience, and expertise to share, and I'm glad you corrected me. No, no problem. So, all right, great. Can you give an overview, just to start, of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine program, focusing on its more distinctive elements? Sure, absolutely. Well, Hopkins is an MD program. Let's start there. It's allopathic right. uh, as opposed to osteopathic. So, Osteopathic schools award the DO, Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine. Hopkins is one of 160 plus allopathic schools in the U.S. that awards the MD. We have been around since, I would say, 1893 or so as a medical school. We were one of the first medical schools to establish the need for prerequisites. And we're also the institution where the term rounding is developed. So our dome, which is an iconic image of the uh, medical school is where rounding first um, took place. And Hopkins is one of the schools in 1911 or 1912 that the Fletcher reports it right. got it right. That's all to say we have a history, but Hopkins doesn't believe in, nor will they let you rest on your laurels. It's just that we, we recognize that we, we do have history behind us, but th- this is a fascinating place. Uh, we have 120 medical students coming every year. For either MD or MD PhD, a total of 120, several thousand applications. So it's a very long process for the applicants, but also for us. Uh, our mission is research, 
patient care and education. And that is a part of everything we do here. And uh, we are also very incredibly inclusive community. Um, and that is also a part of what we do here. And we recognize uh, that everyone brings something to the table. So this is a, a, is a wonderful environment to be a student, but also to be a member of the community as a professional, uh, whether or not you're teaching or you're a member of the administrative staff. Um, uh, it's very team-oriented. And uh, we're the type of institution where we, uh, everyone has a, a voice, including the students, and we uh, listen very closely to our students. And we also encourage, really require that they honor the patients that they work with. So you have to be very service-oriented and culturally competent to, to really exist there. But it's very much a team uh, environment here on all levels, on all levels. All right, great. Thank you for that answer. That's great. Last time you were on Admission Straight Talk, I mentioned it was the height of COVID. COVID had dramatically changed our world, including admissions. Today, I'd like to ask about AI and chat GPT, which are definitely also changing our world, and specifically the impact of those two technologies on medical school admissions. And actually, they're, they're I think, very much one and the same. Chat GPT, to my limited understanding, is a form of or uses AI. Now, medicine is using AI, as I understand it. Medical practice is using AI. But are you concerned about applicants using ChatGPT? Well, I am. If Yes, I am. Let's just put it that way. Okay. I, I am concerned because if you're applying to the medical schools, you, it, it should be based on your own ideas, your own creativity, you know, and not something that is generated by ChatGPT, right. uh, number one. Number two, you know... AI, which is all part of that, is certainly being used even by some medical schools in their admissions processes. We're not using that. In fact, there hasn't even been any discussion about it, partly because it's so new. And, and, but also, one of the reasons why I work for the institutions where I've worked for the past 40 plus years is because uh, we spend a lot of time in, looking at the individual and looking at the individual application, and we don't read people out, we don't pre-screen, you know, so we're, we're really looking truly holistically. And when you're using something like uh, AI, for instance, you, you may be using an algorithm to determine who should be getting a secondary, or who should be getting an interview, or who should be getting admitted. That's for the committee, and that means a full discussion. And if it's only done by uh, the use of an algorithm, I'm not sure if that's really fair. Okay. Sorry, mm -hmm. that's one answer. The other answer, though, is gets back to the, uh, the use of chat. And I, I really think it should be the student's own ideas. And frankly, I'm not I'm not well-versed enough, but I, I just don't think it's as honest, frankly, if you were to resort to something like that. Right, right. I also, I mean, I've I've played with it a little bit. And um, and one of our consultants played with it a little bit more. And she's actually, she's a trained journalist. She basically tried to get it to produce an MBA essay. And the amount of work that it took her to get it to produce anything of quality was almost as much as it would have taken her to draft the thing herself. And so you, know, you kind of have two risks to, to AI from my perspective. One is that they write an essay that's much better than the applicant could write on their own. Mm -hmm. And the other is that they do, it does a much worse job than the applicant would do on his own. 
So it's it's yeah, a double it's a double edged sword. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I also think Linda that you know some people have have more privilege than others and more access to the kinds of tools and devices that would allow them to do that to give themselves a, a, a perhaps an unfair advantage in the process. Mm-hmm. And I, I just you know the whole reason why I got into admissions forty four years ago is I wanted to level the playing field. Do you feel you've done it? I I think so. I think so. I I, I certainly made the effort, and I think the mm-hmm. institutions where I've worked on, yeah, I um, just very briefly I gave a talk to a summer program here a week ago. Yeah, the days fly by. So I just realized it was just last Friday, and the um, faculty member who invited me to speak to the students came to talk to me afterwards, and she said, you know, I just want you to know we knew each other because I'm on the education policy and curriculum committee here, which she was serving on. And she said, I just want you to know, though, even though I'm not on that committee, the reason why I started this program is because of you. I said, really? And she said, because you talk about the need to attract a diverse population and in all ways, you know, not just ethnicity and race, but make an effort to attract people who may not be necessarily in your, your pathway or pipeline initially to create mm-hmm. you know, the opportunities. Mm-hmm. And she's done that and done it beautifully. And I, 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 I'll be perfectly honest. I was stunned that she said that I had inspired her and others to do that. So, well, that must um, be very gratifying. It is gratifying. It, it, yeah. it is surprising, to be perfectly honest. But um, that's one of the you know, remarkable things I like about this institution. If you are committed and you know your field and you've achieved any type of success, other people here will recognize that. And so it isn't just that I see someone who's got an amazing surgery or uh, analysis of a disease, but it's recognizing people who know their profession, including admission. Right, right, for sure. Let's turn to the Johns Hopkins application process, and specifically the secondary application. Now, you ha- you have a very thorough secondary asking for five essays, I think 2,500 characters maximum each for, for the essays, except for one that's a little bit shorter. What do you glean from the secondary that the primary doesn't provide? Ah, that's a great question, and I think every school has, uh, just about every school has a secondary. Oh, they almost all do, yeah. Right. I, I, the secondary, for my money, should um, tell you what our values are by the questions we ask. Okay. All right, and those questions, excuse me, yeah. we're near a hospital. Uh, hospital. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> those questions should give you an indication what we consider important as an institution here. Yeah, of course. And, and, and they also fit, Linda, with the AAMC's interpersonal and intrapersonal competencies. So again, we're looking at more than just MCAT and GPA. Mm-hmm. We're looking at what you will bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to get a sense of your sensitivity to people who don't look like you. We want to know if you've ever had to, to demonstrate resiliency or, you know, overcome something. Those are parts of our questions, and that's really important to us. And then if, if everything works out, we invite you for an interview, you know. And, and I tell people, the interviewer, the interview isn't going to make or break you. The fact is, you had an interview. It's just that we can't take everyone, and the interview is one other tool in our toolbox to, to use. But it's not the only factor that we can do. 
I think I remember looking at the stats. By the time you get to the interview stage, it's about a 50% acceptance rate. Is that correct? Yeah, it's close. That is close. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, it was very close yeah, to 50%. Year we accepted 264. That includes the MD, PhD, and the MD, mm-hmm. and the MD to come off of the waiver. Right. Okay. okay. So, and our class is 120. We've accepted 264. It's a yield so far of about 45%. Right. Okay. Right. So, yeah. If, so, if you get to the interview, we now we invited to interview just about 592 yeah. total and was admitted. 262. So it's more of a third to 40% if you ask me. All right. So maybe was, I was looking at the stats for last year. Last that, year. That's you know, okay. Had, and that was a higher number admitted off the wait list. You know, okay. Yeah. I, I yeah, wish yeah, it was a flat line, but it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's like 100% yield, I'm sure. Okay. Well, if we did that, we'd be admitting a lot fewer. That's all I say. That's that, true. Yeah. That's yeah. true. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A, I wouldn't want everyone, but it's just that there's no way. You know, I tell the committee all the time, the class is 120. We're not admitting 120. Because these are applicants, especially for institutions like Hopkins, who quite rightly get into multiple institutions. Sure. So the competition to get into your school is tough, and the competition to attract the applicants that you want to accept right. is also tough. That's right. But right. You know, another way of looking at this, though, Linda, is our applicant acceptance rate is 6%. For those right. Yes. The secondary. So when you say, well, you know, your chances are really high, that's true. But we only invite the interview 15%. That's where the real, the, uh, right, that's exactly. where the real so you got to get to the right. interview, and then only 6% of all applicants who submit the secondary. I'm not even counting the AMCAP out. Right, right, right. Complete is roughly 6%. Well, I'm going to, I had another question planned to ask this later, but since we're talking about it, we're going to ask it right now. So, you have the primary, you have the secondary, and you have to go from 4,500 applications, let's say last cycle, mm-hmm. down to 500 interview invitations. So that mm-hmm. means you've got to knock out about 4,000 applications. Right. What makes an applicant jump off the page of the application? What makes them come alive for you? What makes them attractive? Yeah. That's, well, that's a great question because um, what I will tell you, and, and, and partly, and I told the group that I met with today is, there, you know, we have committees, and one yeah. of those committees is called the screening committee, right? Yeah. Now, maybe it's because I work very closely with that committee, and I'm a member of that committee, as well as the larger committee, but there are only eight of us who screen all those applications, and I read close to 50% of those. Wow. 40, 40 plus percent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 40% as a primary reader, and then the rest... I will second read everyone who, or third read if necessary. So everyone gets at least two reviews and sometimes three. And oftentimes I'm the third reviewer. But I also do the first review. We always start the year, which we'll want to in a couple of weeks, with an overview of the class that we just attended. So they have an idea what stood out. We could possibly do better in some areas, but there are no quotas. You know, it's interesting that we work with people on. So what are your targets? I want a class of 120. Tell me, yeah, I want a class of 120. That's my target, right? What bucket do I belong in? What bucket do I fit in? Exactly. But everyone comes at it from a different perspective. We have researchers who are screeners for us. We have uh, physicians, clinicians, obviously. You know, I'm an admissions professional. And, And then we have the full discussion with the entire committee, including medical students. We have 20 medical students on our plate. Uh, a fourth year. And 
I, I tell the committee, look, let's start with, we are a medical school. We want people who understand or have an inkling of an understanding of patient care. If they don't have that, that's going to be a problem. So we look for clinical exposure. Right. And for us, that's a fairly significant uh, uh, part of the evaluation process. We look, you know, we certainly look at academic excellence, but the committee doesn't need, once they get to the interview, they don't even, they're not even asked to evaluate that. Isn't that interesting? Right. Yeah. They, we, they figure, well, you know, we don't even have to look at their MCATs or GPAs. This is the committee, the screeners have said this person has significant clinical experience. Or and or significant leadership and or significant community service and or significant research and some have all those things. That's the beauty of our our, our applicant poll. That's what they bring to us. So it allows us to be a, a somewhat selective as a result. Sure. And occasionally they'll say, "But this is a wonderful person," and I tell them there are a lot of wonderful applicants out there. We can't interview them all. We just can't. So. We, you know, we look for the outliers, frankly. The outliers in terms of those three qualifications, clinical exposure, community service, and research? Well, there are more things, but that's part of yeah. why. Because yeah. if they don't have those things, they're the outliers. That's what I'm saying. Right, right. right. They have to be within that, yeah, and, and be in the top in all those categories, or in, in much of those categories. Right. And then um, I assume that there are other nice-to-haves uh, in the application. What what are some of the nice-to-haves? Well, I Incredible letters of recommendation. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, uh, again, it's rare to find someone who, who gets a uh, negative, but believe it or not, we do see it occasionally, and uh, we're always surprised and, and appreciative, you know, uh, yeah. if they are being truly honest with us. And sometimes they're not, then we're thinking, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, we see some glitches here, and no one's brought it up. That person will not likely get to the interview stage. But if they do get to the interview stage and you as the interviewer haven't, hasn't brought the great job, that's my job to bring it up to them. And, well, tell me about this. Okay. Because it's okay to have a glitch. It really is. We're not looking for perfect. But we, we want to be strong applicants overall. Makes and sense. That's part of the discussion there. Makes sense. What else do we look for? We have people who write well. Teamwork is very important to us and we find it in multiple areas of the application and then in our questions as well are you planning to make any changes to your secondaries this year no no okay what are interviews like at johns hopkins uh and standard for domestic applicants they are all in person is that correct no no, no. all right no. so they, uh, for the past four years now yeah going on four years uh, it's been virtual interviews and okay. we will continue with that the MD PhD may be a little different. You know, um, the MD uh, candidates are all interviewing virtually. We're going to continue with that. We have two interviews. We still do the two interviews, and one is the medical student. Okay. And uh, one is faculty member. They're all uh, voting members of the admissions committee, and uh, given full access to the candidate's application. We give them free reign in terms of the questions, but we have a couple that we ask that they all ask the interviewee. Makes sense. Is there opportunities for the applicant to learn about Johns Hopkins and the like? Is there interview days, or are they just? We hope so. (laughs) We hope so. You know, one of the things we've done since the pandemic. um, I used to meet with all the applicants. Uh, uh, There were two of us who would meet with all of them either on a Thursday or Friday. If I I did Thursday, it should be Friday or whatever. 
so we, we um, do an orientation session with them. Now, since the pandemic, uh, we sent out a video of yours truly giving an overview of Hopkins. We also um, include in the invitation to interview information about the various groups that they can connect with, either before the interview or anytime after the interview. And we have a program for interviewees that we're invited to interview, invited to meet with some of our students virtually now, but uh, before it was in person, uh, the night before your interview, or the night after, it's, it's a possibility to, but certainly the night before, uh, if you want your questions answered, you know, um, yeah. and, and to go informed into the interview. And that has been going on for a long time, and the students really enjoy that, uh, particularly since it's only with first-year students, that, that part. Uh, but we have um, various groups, uh, affinity groups, we provide you with their contact information and we schedule meetings with those students um, twice a month, I believe, uh, for anyone who's interviewed who wants to talk to uh, one of the affinity groups. So, okay, well, we great. We try to give them lots of opportunities to engage and learn about That's... Hopkins other than from the, you know, old folks like me. You know, so. Right, right, for sure. Now, I saw online that interviews end in late February. I mean, you've always been very good about putting out the, the timeline. Mm-hmm. When is typically the last date that interview invitations are sent out? I'll tell you why I ask this question. Everybody asks us all. Well, you know, when it was in person, probably the last date would be the last, excuse me, the first week in February. With virtual, we, can, we literally sometimes invite people three or four days before the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I would say so, at least a week before is ideal. So mid mid late February would be the late mid, the latest. Mid mid February to late yeah. February. Certainly not the day before. Yeah, we want to get right. up. But when it was in person, because of travel and so forth, we always get minimally two weeks in advance. Right. The reason I ask this question is because there's this meme out there that if you don't have an interview invitation by Thanksgiving, you're toast. And every single admissions director I've asked says, no, we interview yeah. into January, February, and some into late March. I don't March, think anybody goes yeah. into April. So I always ask this question, and, I, you know, and that's, that's why. Do you know where that's coming wrong. from? But Linda, do you know where that's coming from? There are some schools. Yeah, no, yeah. Go, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Medical schools. I think we're partly to blame, but I also yeah. think that uh, there's a myth out there yeah. It's best to get your application in as quickly as possible. I know of one really fine medical school that will even tell their tell applicants, get it in as soon as possible. And they've done a statistical analysis to show that the acceptance rate is higher for people who apply earlier to that medical school. Now, what I would want to know is what's the profile of those students then? You see? Because yeah. in our experience, first of all, we wait for the verified ANFAS application. Of course. Which we won't get until... Tomorrow, right, June thirtieth. Right. That's the right. first day, and we will not look at it. Trust me, and we don't pre-screen. But sometime <laughs> after July fourth, we will start delivering access, acknowledging, and then providing access to our secondary application. You can take however much time you want to get it in, as long as it's in my office by November first. Right. Really, doesn't yes. matter to you. It doesn't matter okay. to me. I do not read anything into it. If someone waits until September. There, I figure there's a reason for it. And should some people wait? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm talking about someone who is having an incredible summer experience like the students I just spoke with. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be able to write that. We don't take updates. 
Right, right, so right. About that. I don't want an update. Right. I want to know what you're doing, what you've done. Okay. And if you get invited to interview for Hopkins, I'm just talking about Hopkins. Right, right, right. Then you can provide an update after the interview. Okay. Okay. But before that, so if you, if there's for any reason, uh, you're having an incredible summer experience, which I hope our summer internship program is for these students, and you want to write about it knowledgeably, <laughs> you know, then wait. Yeah. There's no disadvantage. Uh, we notify students that you've been to my website, you'll see that we say we notify students mid-December, end of January, and end of March. You know, I once heard or read on one of those, you know, studentdoctor.net or interview feedback, one of the things. I think they've been combined now, but someone said, uh, if you're interviewing in January or February, you're interviewing for the wait list. Well, that's new, that was news to me. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why bother, right? Why right. would we bother? To, why would to you invest in the interview? Why would you invest exactly. in the interview? And why would a student invest in it as well? Right. Instead, some of our most interesting students, we don't get to their applications until, in terms of the review, until December and January. And I'm like, this is great. Wow, let's bring right. this person in. And we, we don't want anyone to lose interest in us. And don't take that as, a, as, a, as an indication of unlikely to be admitted. Some of our best applicants were taken in the last month. Fascinating. Absolutely wonderful people. So the, the, the reason I've usually heard from admissions people for mm-hmm. getting the application in promptly, not, not before it's ready. Nobody says get it in sloppy. Yeah, Nobody says that. Right, that's right. Right. But the, you know, if you can get in earlier, get it in earlier because there are more interview slots available. So do you hold interview slots for late in the we cycle? Do. We okay. hold interview slots. In fact, we probably interview more people later in the process than earlier in the process. I see. Now, that's partly a reflection of when we start our interviews. We start at the end of August. And we right. will only bring in a few people sort of to get our toes wet. Okay? Because uh-huh. in mind, while some right. of the committee members are... Uh, or veterans, all the medical students are brand new, right? Right. right. Uh, and we always have new committee members, and so we don't want to overwhelm them. So we always start small, and then we start working towards a, a larger number by, I'll say, October, and then it gets even larger by January. So, I mean, if you were to look, I, I, I have a document right here, which I can't share, but I'm looking at the, the people who, who were discussed at the meetings, and the last Two months, we had a huge number compared to the first four months. Wow. All right. Okay. That's good to know. That's yeah. just a different process. It's, 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 every school's different. Right. Uh, you know, right. I, I, I'm glad it's not lockstep, you know, an identical. I mean, I, I've worked at one other medical school, and, you know, they asked me to come there after I'd been at Hopkins for a number of years. And I felt like I was on a different planet, you know, in terms of, <laughs> of uh, what we were looking for. And I was able to learn a lot and bring it back to Hawkins when I returned 12 right. years ago, you know. So, and, and that's okay. I, it was great. I think they learned something. I'm sure. I, I know I, I definitely changed their process. You know, one of the things I found was they were pre screening the AMCAP foundation to determine who would get the secondary, and yet 98% of the people were given a secondary. I said, why are you screening? Right, yeah. exactly. I but no one had bothered to do that. And there were some other things I did to set that down. And then I also found they were still interviewing the first week of May. I almost had a heart attack. The first yeah. week of May. In other oh. words, the following May. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah, know, I and understand. So, That's ridiculous. Right. 
And back then, you may re- recall, and you know, traffic rules were different before, you know, CYMI, yeah. Yeah. or CYMS. I would say, uh, I, I said to the committee, not, this is a, uh, not a topic, I said, do, do you know about the March, May 15th deadline? Yeah, we have to let them know by May 15th. I said, no, <laughs> they have to let us know, which means they have to have been interviewed and admitted. Right, by right? May 15th. By May yeah. 15th. And, you, you know, we shouldn't even be interviewing. So that was the last year right, that we interviewed. Right, that late. Um, and, and we even added a date because of some storms and stuff. Then one day in April, but after that, it, it got moved to March. And now they're, I think, doing the last of the interviews by the end of February. So Right, right. Uh, traffic rules have changed. So. For sure, for sure. I think part of the, the reason behind this this November myth, I, you, you certainly gave a good one. Another one is that I think it is wise for applicants who don't have, let's say, several interviews by Thanksgiving to start thinking about reapplication well, and preparing sure, for it. Sure. In other words, if you, you get the primary and you get the secondary in, mm-hmm. and, and then you're tired, you take a break, all right? The break is a good idea. But if you're not, if you're kind of just hanging out and you're going to hang out until May 15th when you know the results and if the results mm-hmm. are not what you wanted, and then you start thinking of reapplication, You've almost certainly lost a lost or, or put yourself back a year. Let's put it that way. Sure. Lost my. Oh, well, that's strong. true. But you know, but I think that's that's of... different. That's different from your toast. It just means right, right. start thinking, start planning, start thinking that it might not work out the way you want. Can I can I make one comment sure, about that? Sure, there are sure. People who they need to do that thinking and analysis, self analysis before they even apply. Oh, sure. I Absolutely. find that most people know what the holes were in their application. Don't think that if you throw the football, <laughs> someone will catch it. No. Don't, don't even bother Thanks throwing it. Yeah. Just figure out what do I need to do to be at my strongest. You know, not just apply when you're ready, but am I at my strongest in terms of my profile? Right. And if you know you have holes in your profile, wait and right. address those holes. Dr. Barry Rothman, who's a former head, he's an exhibit consultant. Oh, you know Barry. Okay. Mm-hmm. He always says, mm-hmm. yeah, all right. He's a former head of the postback program at Cal State San Francisco. Mm-hmm. He's a founder, founder of the program. He's a former head mm-hmm. of the program. In any case, he frequently says the fastest way to medical school is slowly. Yes. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't right. agree more. But right. you know, think of who's applying to medical school. These are people who used to going at 90 miles an hour. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Let's go back to Johns Hopkins, though. Okay. What is the, the evaluation? I mean, I could, we could talk about all this stuff all day long. What is, what is the evaluation process? So somebody submits a, a primary and they check Johns Hopkins and you send them a secondary and they fill it out. They do the best they can and they send it in. What mm-hmm. happens? What happens is uh, once it's complete and mm-hmm. I was, you know, I worked with my colleagues and the administrative staff, they will say this is a complete application that they, they put them in. The, the electronic file, and they just give it up by uh, a certain number to each member of the screening committee. And I usually give them about a, a week to review however many files they have in that, in their bin, so to speak, right? And uh, again, we've already had discussions. In fact, sometimes I'll let them read a few applications and then have a meeting to talk about what are you seeing? Okay, you know, are, are you seeing any changes? Some schools, for instance, uh, uh, are dropping their, their committee letters. The University of Chicago just sent something out saying they're dropping their committee letter a couple of years ago. 
Yale dropped their committee letters. I was just devastated by that one. That's my alma mater. Yeah. I remember, yeah. I, I was just shocked. I really was. Things like that. Those kinds of things. I want to make sure they're aware of that and not thinking, because sometimes we'll say, well, this person has not seen a letter from Linda Abram, who's the director of the um, uh, missions committee. And we always get a committee letter. And say, ah, yes, Linda's no longer sending us. Right. They have to either send the packet or, or, as we say, individual letters from faculty who taught them in a course, two in the sciences, one mm -hmm. non-science. So the committee reads the application in the order in which it is sent by AMCAS, and it follows up with our secondary application. What's the first thing we see? Biographical information. Mm -hmm. What's the second thing? Your parents' information and demographic information. The distance you've traveled, you know, the, you know they've take, taken out the uh, disadvantage statement. Mm -hmm. the point right, right. Now it's so there'll uh, be something in there. Yeah, I forget right, what they call I it. Like, so yeah, I got to get used like, to the, yeah, the change. Right, know, different, but, different. I mean, and that's fine, you know. Yeah, impact, impactful experiences. Impactful, yeah, impactful yeah, yeah, experiences. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you know, it, it, I haven't had a chance to really review any applications yet, so it hasn't sunk in my, in my mind yet, the, the, um, the, the language. But yes, that's exactly right, the impactful statement. But we look at that, and then we look at the academic information. And I want to make note of whether or not they're an reapplicant. Then I look at their letters of recommendation, committee letters, individual letters, and I look at their act activities. Um, and of course, you know they can list up to 15 activities. It's meaningful. I want to look at all of those um, individually and a personal statement. I left that off. Uh, we certainly look at the personal statement. Would you look at the personal statement around the same time as looking at the activities or before, yeah. after? Yeah, oh, actually, mm -hmm. before we even look at their activities before mm -hmm. that and even mm -hmm. before we even before we get to their academic we look at their mm -hmm. so academics seem to be kind of low on the list yeah it does seem doesn't it <laughs> it does those stats that everybody talks about all right i know but I, I, i'm telling you that that's our process we okay. really want to know what kind of person is this and why medicine right what has he or she done um that make that has brought them to this point what experiences Right. So, and then we look at our questions on our secondary after we finish all that, that, that really dig a little deeper mm -hmm. on the interest in medicine and how they demonstrated that, and also dealing with people. Right. right. And we have a question on our application that's purely optional. Well, we do. One is, it's, no, it's not optional. We have a, an unusual question that a bioethicist created, like, you know. Um, and we just got a preliminary report on that, and it's it about it. It shows a very creative mind. One is that the one about wonder? Yes, it is. Yes, yeah. it is. exactly. It's a very interesting question. Do you mind if um, I just read it off? Because so, readers okay. listen. It's wonder encapsulate a feeling of rapt attention. It draws the observer in. Tell us about a time in recent years that you experienced wonder in your everyday life. Although experiences related to your clinical or research work may be the first to come to mind, we encourage you to think of an experience that is unrelated to medicine or science. What did you learn from that experience? It's a great question. Oh. Well, question. Well, if you know the woman who created it, if she is uh, a member of the admissions committee and is an incredible uh, thinker. You know, I think outside the box, and I, I love having people on the committee with different perspectives, and she's certainly has to be different. Right, right. Um, and, and as I said, we... We've already um, got a primary analysis, and we're going to continue to research in the next couple of years. And it is IRB approved. Right. We do have a question, which you may see as well, about positive 
which kind of gets it to like what's um, being asked now by the um, AMCAS application, except we've been asking this question for three or four years, four or five years. Tell us anything that is not already discussed. I'm going to know the distance they travel. Everyone's had a different lot in life. Everyone has a different perspective and a different experience that they I can discuss. So this gives everyone an opportunity to share that. It, right. That is optional for us, though. It is totally right. optional, and I've even told the committee, do not uh, hold it against if they didn't answer it, because it's sure. not you know, you do get quite a bit of information between the primary and the and the required secondary essays. So, um, mm-hmm. yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Right, all right. But, but you know, I've I've learned some things with the optional questions. Yeah. That I hope people are comfortable in in, in sharing with us, and if it brings us to an, a better understanding of who they are, okay, things that they may not have shared with their school. Yeah, I, I'm kind of laughing because I, I was on a panel with a group of other deans a few months ago, and, and it, it was a woman from one of the schools who said, this generation tends to overshare. <laughs> um, I, you know, and I have to agree with that. But when we invite you to share, it's because there's a purpose. Okay. Right. So. right. And they can still... You know, they can still use some judgment and share. Uh, oh, I hope they will. I hope they will. <laughs> Linda, uh, I can tell you some horror stories, not from the applications here, but uh, when I did undergrad admissions, there were times when I blushed. Okay. <laughs> After reading, <laughs> I was like, okay, you didn't show this to someone else. <laughs> yeah. I've occasionally had, you know, just in hiring, I've had people do some sharing that I thought, where, uh, where's the judgment? <laughs> but, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now you mentioned that you do not accept updates, right? Not until after someone has interviewed. Only because the, uh, the way our process works, you right. know, once we start reading, we keep reading. We don't go back. Right. And, right. and if you send something to me a month after you've been evaluated, it is not going to be reviewed. So if somebody's on is, has been interviewed and wants to update you, or somebody is on the wait I'll list, I tell them how to do that. They can do wait, that too. Okay. Even and, before they've even been decision, I will tell them they can always send us an update anytime after the interview. And that can also be additional letters of recommendation. Okay. All right. Yeah, it doesn't have to just be an update. But it what, makes be, it, what makes it a, a valid reason to update you? Well, that's what I was just about to say. If oh, okay. That, you know, if, if there is something that may have occurred between the time they apply and the time they interview, and we don't accept updates, and they want us to know about it, then that's valid after okay. the interview. Mm-hmm. Because they've gotten that far. And we think, oh, this is pretty nice. So what are typical things? Well, they had a manuscript that was accepted for publication. Okay, yeah. that's 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 fair. Yeah, but right. You, you know, we won't accept that before you've interviewed. We just we can't. Okay. Uh, but we will after the interview, or if they've had an experience with someone who's only got to know them over the summer, and they've continued working with that people, that person, and we're interviewing them in December or January, and they'd like that individual's input. That's a perfect update. After sure. the interview. What about they've had, maybe they're taking a gap year and they've had a, a started a full-time job, maybe as a scribe or a, a medical assistant or something like that. Only after they've interviewed. After they've interviewed. No, I after understand the, that. Yeah, not after they've interviewed, not before that. But that's something right. describing what were their responsibilities and what they learned from right. the... What they learned from, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. right. Okay. But, you know, that's different from a letter of interest. Okay. Okay. Now, I don't know if you were going to ask me about that, but I was thinking I about it. Get asked, I often get asked, 
Uh, is it, do, do you want a letter of interest? No. Okay. Your application is, is your letter, letter of interest. interest. Right, right, right. No, I hear that. Yeah. I hear that. This is, of course, a time when, when it's now end of June. So most people know they've either going to medical school and starting from last cycle. Now I'm talking. And they're either CTE or PTE. <laughs> right, exactly. What if you want to be a reapplicant? What What is your advice for reapplicants? Uh, that's, that's a great question. And there's something going on on the serve now for the, for the GSA about what do you do with a reapplicant? I'm not going to weigh in because I disagree with half of what I'm reading, you know, but I'm a minority. <laughs> I, you know, to, I, it really touched on something I said earlier. And, and by the way, I'm not trying to be smart. This is, Linda, I think you know by now that I really am committed to what I do. And both for the institution, but also for the applicant, I want there to be a great fit for both. Right. And, I, sure. and I, want, I want the applicant to succeed wherever he or he goes for medical school. And if, if you're not ready and you don't get in, Think about what those issues could possibly have been. In fact, my other institution, I put in, in my denial letter, these are the, the type of reasons why people don't get in. If you see yourself in any way lacking, then address those. Take a year, take two years, depending on what the issue is. Um, I, I, I can't provide individual feedback at Hopkins, I just can't. I was required to do it at the other institution. And one woman who came to see me, her advisor knew that she was coming to see me to talk, be honest with her. I'm going to be honest, okay? And she said, but also make her come see you. Don't let her do it over the phone or send um, an email question to you. And I asked this woman who had a 399 at a wonderful small liberal arts college in the upper Midwest and who hadn't gotten in anywhere. And I said, what do you think the problem was? She goes, well, I had trouble with my first question in the interview. So, okay, do, do you know what that was? Can you recall what that question was? Why do you want to be a doctor? And I looked at her, I said, you had trouble with that? And the floodgates opened. Aww. <laughs> I grabbed a box of tissue, I always keep a box. <laughs> All right. I don't know if you can see it. But I, I see, see it. Yeah, I see okay. it. I grabbed a box of tissue and handed it to her and kept talking. I said, yes, I saw that when I would read your application, that you you have a shyness that borders on pathology. You said, uh, pathological. pathological. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you need to, and then when I look at your activities, none of them really bring you into close communication with people. And it fits. I said, and I gave her some advice. An organization that I think does a great job of preparing people, uh, Toastmasters International. Sure, sure. Right? Oh, it's excellent. Yeah, it's excellent. I had a, I had an introverted roommate one year when I was in law school, uh-huh. and, uh, and she did that, and she now traveling the world for the U.S. State Department. Okay? Wow. So wow. I know it can work. <laughs> All right. This yeah, is yeah. And I so I told this applicant and, and some other things. And I, get, and I don't want you to apply for a year. Take the year uh-huh. off, get some business max. She applied the following year. She was interviewed again. They looked at my notes. I always wrote notes. And they yeah. did everything Paul asked her to do. And she's wonderful. And she's in. That's great. Yeah. Great story. And it's a great story, but it, I think it, it, 
to me, it's a simple thing. Do some reflection okay, before you reapply. Or even ask us. I mean, I had a, one, a guy who came to see me was outraged that he didn't get in. My, God's gift to medicine? Well, my, he, my father's a doctor. He said I should have gotten in with those grades and MCAT scores. Your father wasn't the applicant. And your father wasn't reading the well, application. Wasn't reading the application, and so I, I, I tell him, and he says, "Well, that's okay." I say, Excuse me. Well, I got into another medical school. Up here. Then why are we having this discussion? Yeah, really. He just wanted to. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and you know what that told me? We made the right decision. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure you didn't have any regrets there. <laughs> no, none. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, we sometimes talk to reapplicants. Sometimes they just want to, they want us to tell them what they want to hear, which is frequently something along the lines of, I know my MCAT was low. I retook the MCAT. My essays were great. I don't have to do anything else. And, and I always tell them, if you just resubmit, tell me if I'm wrong. If you just resubmit your essays from your last application cycle, you are not able to show any growth. Any dynamism. Exactly. That's one of the things I saw as someone said, well, no, they can send in the same application. No, there should be some changes. I yeah. couldn't agree more. There should, we need to see that growth, which is why I say it can sometimes require more than a few months, but a year. Yeah. And some schools have a formal policy about, about reapplication. Right. I you know, I, I know the schools pretty well. If you don't get in, and you reapply the second time, and you don't get in, they make you wait a year before really? you start reapply a third and final time. I know many schools, you know, basically, if you've applied three times, then, then you really are toast if you're not, not admitted. Well, well but but, do you want to hear something, Linda? We had yeah. someone early when I came yeah. in 2000 who had already applied 11 or 12 times. 11 or 12 times. We also suspect that this person wrote her own letters of recommendation. <laughs> wow. So there were other reasons why she didn't get in. Yeah, yeah, that will that will do it for sure. Yeah, um, incredibly bright person, but had, there were some issues there. Anyways, um, all right. On a forward-looking note, okay. what what advice would you give to medical school applicants? And this time, first-time medical school applicants, let's say, mm-hmm. planning ahead to apply in twenty twenty-four. In other words, next year's cycle or two years hence. Well, next year's cycle for me has already begun by tomorrow. No, right? no, I mean starting starting, oh, starting in that, uh, June 2024. Mm-hmm. I, I think people would save themselves a lot of grief if they applied to a, look at a broad range of schools and try to match their profile to a broad range of schools and not go just with name recognition. Like that's the worst reason to apply to us because we recognize the name. I want them to apply to Hopkins because they see themselves there in the community when they look at our profile, when they read about us, what we value in terms of patient care, in terms of serving the community. You know, save yourself a lot of work. <laughs> okay. But really read our websites. You know, they're there for a reason. Look at where you want to be. So if you're applying very vertically, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. It has to be. Of a, a horizontal process. And there has to be some variety uh, along that horizontal line. Like, yeah, know, it's a matching process. Here, but it's a matching process. People don't do that, though. They yeah. think, oh, I know this. Well, there are some wonderful places out there. You're going to graduate with an MD degree. Okay? It's about getting in, 
making your mark, and then getting into the residency program. Internship and residency is really important. They right. want to know what people ask, where did you train? They're not talking about where did you do in the degree, although you know, some are thinking along these lines. They also want to know where did you do your uh, graduate training, which is what the residency is. Makes sense. Makes sense. What would you have liked me to ask you? What would I have liked you to ask? Ask me about Baltimore. Ask me about what our students do. Okay. What's it like going to medical school in Baltimore? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) Um, You know, first of all, I think Baltimore has a a number of issues. Okay, And and the good thing is we're always trying to to fix those issues. This is a place that will challenge you in terms of uh, being able to work with a really diverse patient population and and making a difference for those folks. That's why our our volunteer organization here is huge. It's enormous, absolutely enormous. And it's bringing our medical students and our graduate students, our public health students and our nursing students into the communities to to help make that difference. And that's what I love about being in, in this environment, frankly. I love the fact that our students are a part of the community and not apart from the community. And our faculty and staff as well. You know, I, for my undergraduate alma mater, I, I did a lot of volunteer work in the community uh, and would look for people to join who had gone to the CEO. And half my group were from Hopkins Medical School because they wanted to, to get involved. But, you know, so it just tells me the students who come here really are committed to serving others. And this is a great place for them to do that. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Paul, I think we're almost out of time. I want to thank you again for joining me and sharing your expertise and your 40 years of experience. There's a lot of wisdom here. I know you're extremely busy. This has been just delightful. Where can listeners learn more about Johns Hopkins School of Medicine? Uh, if they'll go to our website, uh, the basic website URL is hopkinsmedicine.org. Okay, great. We're going to include links in the show notes at exhibit.com slash 533 to Johns Hopkins Medical, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to listeners. Quick reminder, don't miss the Med School Admissions Quiz. Find out if you are really ready to apply and competitive at your target schools. Take the quiz at exhibit.com slash medquiz today. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. <music>